Welcome to the Joint Heirs Podcast. This is Pastor Roger Zhang welcoming you back for the continuation of our Black Lives Matter series. In this uh, particular episode, we're going to be taking a look at God's salvation plan. What we want to understand is how God works in salvation to save all of mankind and compare that to some of the theology, uh, whether it's stated or not, uh, in the Black Lives Matter movement. So before we begin, let's open with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for your kindness to us, for how you have chosen to save not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles, that this has always been a part of your plan. And we pray that as we study salvation, that you would be honored and that you would be glorified as we think about how your salvation plan works for the entire world, not just for one particular race, but for all of us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to recognize what your word has to say about salvation and help us to stand for the truth. We pray that you would be glorified and honored. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we begin looking at God's salvation plan, we begin all the way at the very beginning. Now, in the current debate that we see regarding social justice and and everything else that that is uh, going on uh, with Black Lives Matters, one of the common defenses uh, that we hear from Christians in terms of why they respond, in terms of why they feel like they must protest or that uh, that we must stand up and act for justice, is because uh, George Floyd and others uh, like Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery were made in the image of God, and we absolutely affirm this statement. We absolutely affirm this statement that they were or that they are made in the image of God because Genesis 1.26 makes it very clear. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food to you, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So what we see is that God created man to bear his image. And part of bearing his image is not only reflecting him in his, what we would call communicable attributes, being able to communicate, uh, to have emotions, to, um, to interact with one another in love. Another part of it is what we see here in the creation mandate, or what God has 
created us for. We don't exist just for the sake of existing, just for the sake of God's viewing pleasure, but he has us here for a purpose. And you'll notice that when it comes to who man is, mankind, uh, who mankind is, God says that male and female together bear the image of God. That means both of uh, both of these people who were initially created, Adam and Eve, were, were equal in the sight of God. They were equal in the sight of God. They were both important to God. And I know that the majority of the artwork makes it seem as if we know the color of Adam and Eve's skin. But we actually have no idea what the color of Adam and Eve's skin is. So before we kind of get carried away with, um, with looking at uh, per perhaps what, what race they were uh, or, or what color of, of skin they had or how much melanin they had in their skin, let's just remember that God just created men and women to bear his image, to bear his image. We reflect in a certain way the, the inner relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so... When we, when we think about us being made in the image of God, God created us to reflect a little bit of who He is, but also He created us for a purpose. He created us to rule over things. And so there is, there is a purpose for our creation. And what we see here is that we all have a part to play in God's salvation plan. We all have a part. There are some who will have more of a part than others, but that's okay. And we all have something to do in God's salvation plan. Now, of course, what we just finished reading at the end of Genesis 1 tells us that everything was good. Everything was good, but that won't be the case for long. We'll see down in Genesis 2 verses 16 to 17 what constitutes sin against God? It says in verse 16 and 17, Then God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So there is consequence. There is consequence to disobedience. Because God says you can eat of any food, uh, any, any, uh, any fruit, in the garden. But if you eat this particular fruit from the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, then you will surely die. That is the consequence. And that is the consequence. In Genesis 3, 1 through 7, right, now we have the entrance of the serpent. And what does he do? He's trying to cast doubt on what God says. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the tree, fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and your 
you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So what constitutes sin before God? Sin against God? It's not listening to His Word. Not listening to His Word is sin. Not conforming to God's holy standard is sin. This is what sin is. And the reason why we have to establish that this is what sin is, is because when we're talking about what is sin right now in this, in this society, sin is not necessarily that we don't listen to what God's Word says. What people are being asked to repent of in terms of their sin is their whiteness their privilege, their lack of speaking. That is what is being called sin. Now, to be sure, to be sure, there are people who will use their, their social status and their privilege in order to sin against other people. And for those things, the people must repent. But God has never asked for anyone to repent of their skin color or how they were born into the world or where they exist in the world. God doesn't ask you to repent of that. What is clearly sin, what is clearly sin is a failure to be holy, a failure to listen to what God's Word has to say and to do it, which means that if there is any sin in the Scriptures that we have committed, we have to repent of all of those sins. But we can't start making up what sin is. We can't start making up what sin is. Sin is clearly rebellion against what God says. It's, it's clearly against, uh, is, is rebellion against what God's word says. Some of you have heard me say this before. Adam and Eve, they were not forbidden from touching the fruit. Now, Eve kind of goes a step further. She builds an extra hedge around God's original command to prevent uh, herself from sinning by saying that, um, by saying that if you touch the fruit, you will die. Now, God clearly, as we saw in Genesis 2, did not say if you touch it, you will die. He just said if you eat of it, you could die. That means that they could have touched it, they could have plucked it, they could have built forts out of it, they could have played football with it, they could have done all these things with the fruit of the, of, of the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they would not have sinned against God because God did not say you shall not touch he only said, you shall not eat. So, that is what sin is. Now, we'll see later on here in Genesis 3 that there are consequences. There are consequences because of sin. Verse 17 says this, Then to Adam he said, that's God, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, 
about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorn and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return, or you shall return. These are the consequences of sin. Sin is not an innocent action that does not affect other people. It is because of this one particular sin of Adam and Eve disobeying God, refusing to listen to God, and eating the fruit that all of mankind and all of creation have been plunged into this world that has been cursed by sin. Every single thing that we see that is wrong in this world, every single instance of suffering, of injustice, that is a result of this one sin of eating the fruit when God said, don't eat of it. Lest you and I have this idea that sin is not a big deal, this is not at all what the scriptures teach. The scriptures show us that simply eating the fruit that God said not to eat was enough, not only to affect the generations of human beings that would come after Adam and Eve, but it cursed the entire world as well. When we even look at what work uh, is, right? the reason why some of you do not like your work and, and find it toilsome is because of sin. God created us to work. Right? We saw that in Genesis 1. We have a mission. We have a mission to fulfill. Here on this earth, we are supposed to rule over all of the earth. We're supposed to use it well. But because of our sin, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. And in toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It appears that thorns and thistles were not, uh, were not present before the fall. But after the fall, verse 18 of chapter 3 in Genesis, it says, Both thorn and thistles, it shall, the ground shall grow for you. It requires work for us to even sustain ourselves. This is the consequence of sin. So, brothers and sisters, we have to be so, so vigilant against our own sin because our sin does affect other people. And so we have to be mindful of that. And our, our, our sin attitudes, those are the things that will go out into the world. It will cause perhaps, actions that affect others negatively because of skin tone, because of ethnicity. However, however, make sure that you have committed sin. I, there, there are so many people out there right now who are repenting of their privilege. Repenting of their privilege. Repenting of not knowing what our African-American brothers and sisters have gone through in their lives. Brothers and sisters, have you sinned by being unaware? We have to think about that. Yes, we want to learn. Yes, we want to understand. 
but have you sinned because you did not know about what some of these brothers and sisters have experienced in their lives? Is that something that you need to repent of? Is that something that you, you have to go up to a, an African-American brother or sister and say, I repent of this? If you act in ignorance, yes. Right? If you ignorantly interact with someone and cause harm, absolutely, you need to repent. Right? That is sin. But just not knowing and becoming aware, that is not sin. So we have to be careful as to what we label sin. Okay, now, where does, where does our sin come from? Well, we know that at least uh, it, it comes from Adam, right? it's passed down. Uh, it affects all of mankind because he represented us and he plunged all of us into sin when he sinned. Right? So it does come from Adam, but where does sin reside? Where do we have to check our, uh, ourselves for sin? And, and where do we find out where we need to repent? Well, let's look at Genesis 4. In Genesis 4, verses 6 to 8, after Cain and Abel give up their offerings to the Lord, Cain is not happy that God has a high regard for Abel and his offering, but does not have any regard for Cain's offering. And so God says this to Cain. It says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, Will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told, his, told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel and his brother, Abel his brother, and killed him. Where is this sin? Cain's sin was his anger, and his anger was in his heart. Why was he angry? He was angry because he did not give God the kind of sacrifice that God had prescribed as right. He just gave God the fruit to the field. But it was already clear from Abel's offering that an animal sacrifice was required. And what God is saying in verses 6 and 7 is that Abel acted rightly. Cain did not. Now, it might seem to us that Cain was innocent because he did not know that God regarded animal sacrifices more than he did first, uh, first fruits and the products of the field. But God makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? Doesn't he? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Cain knows what was right. It was not told us in the text that Cain knew what was right, but it's implied. It's implied that Cain should have known that this was right, that animal sacrifice was right. Animal sacrifice was required. And, and I mean, we even see that in how God clothed Adam and Eve. Instead of allowing for them to continue to be clothed through plants and vegetation, God killed an animal to clothe them. He killed an animal, used their, the animal's skin to clothe them. And so it's clear that, because, that, that sin requires blood payment. 
sin requires blood pay, pay, payment. And so that's why Cain's sacrifice was not as, um, as, as favored as Abel's. Okay, so sin resides in our heart. And that's where we need to check ourselves. That's where we need to, to look at when we are trying to figure out whether we have sinned against a brother or sister. And it doesn't necessarily have to stay within this realm of our social responsibility to one another. Okay, it doesn't have to stay in the realm of race relations. The sin that we have to make sure that we're looking at is, the, is sin against any brother or sister that we have in our heart against them. Have you been impatient? Have you been angry? Have you slandered them in your heart? Have you slandered them with your words? How, what is your disposition towards your brother or sister? Sin resides in our hearts, and we have to be so, so, so careful about our sin. Now, why do we have to be careful about our sin, especially when it, in, when it includes another image bearer, another human being? Because there is a significance to image bearing. There is a significance to image bearing. Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood, or by man his blood shall be shed. So whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God he made man. As for you, as for Noah, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So God is telling Noah, okay, God is telling Noah the consequences of bloodshed, the consequences of violence. And then he reiterates what God, uh, and God reiterates what he created man to do. We weren't supposed to be here to, to enact acts of violence against one another. We're to be fruitful. We're to multiply. We're not to kill one another. Because we're supposed to represent God here on this earth. And so because God made us in his image, when if we were to kill another person, we are assaulting, we are assaulting someone who bears the image of God. Right? It's almost as if you were assaulting God himself. As if, okay, so it's not that you actually, it's not like uh, every time you, you hate someone, um, it, it's a clear and specific act of hatred towards, uh, towards God himself. But in a sense it is. Right? In a sense it is because he told you not to do that. He told you not to do that. And so that's why we want to be careful. That's why we don't want to name call. That's why we don't want to uh, to really... Um, put down another person and tear them up and and um, and rip them to shreds because they are an image bearer of God. They are an image bearer of God. Now, the significance of this is is helpful for us to see because that means we are to respect every single person who bears the image of God. Now, where do we see the beginning of the ethnic distinction in the world. Well, we see that in Genesis 11. Okay, the, Genesis 11 shows us that um, that our ethnic distinctions, the things that make us different, begins in Gen in um, here at Babel. Okay, verse one tells us now the whole earth 
use the same language and the same words. So this is, this is something that's really important for us to consider. Everyone in the world spoke the same language. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing that if, if everyone in our life spoke the same language? For those of you who, who live at home with people, uh, with, with parents or other relatives who don't speak English, is this not a sense of frustration for you at times when the English and the other foreign language at home, spoken at home, is not, is not um, syncing up? Right? When the Chinese or, uh, or, or whatever other language you might speak is not, uh, is not syncing up, there's miscommunication that happens. Right? But back in, in Genesis 11, before Genesis 11, everyone spoke the same language. Our cultural divides and issues that we have when it comes to uh, what we face today often is a result of the inability to speak the same language. Now, uh, even for those of us who do speak the same language, we have frustrations and, and, and difficulties, but it would be so much easier if we spoke the same language. But, but because of our sin... We no longer speak the same language. Let's look at this. Okay, verse 2, it says this. It came about as they journeyed, as the people in the earth journeyed east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Think back. Think back to what God just told Noah in Genesis 9. What are we created to do? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be fruitful, we're supposed to multiply, and we're supposed to rule over the whole earth. We're not just supposed to settle in one place. However, however, here they decide that they're going to settle in one place. And their intention, verse 4, is to establish their greatness so that they will not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Basically, they said, we know what God wants us to do. We know that he has created us to, to go about the whole earth and to subdue it. But let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's choose to build for us a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. What do we call this reasoning? Here in verse 4. This reasoning is called sin. They thought, hey, if we make ourselves great enough, God can't possibly move us. God can't possibly take us down. He'll have to let us stay here. Let's build a tower high enough so that we can prove our greatness and so God will let us just do what we want to do. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 is hilarious. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men have built. God came down. They tried to build that tower as high as they possibly could to show to God that they cannot be moved, that they cannot be stopped. But God, through Moses, is showing how hilarious and tragic this is. This is, this is righteous condescension. God looks at it, looks at, at the tower, and he comes down. He says, oh, look at this nice little thing that you've made. You think you can build something so great that I won't 
be able to do anything to you? And so we see in verses 7 to 9, the consequence of the rebellion of these men and their refusal to fill the earth. God says, let, come, let us go down. And there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So this consequence of these, these men and their rebellion and their refusal to fill the earth was their spreading throughout the earth. They're spreading throughout the earth. But that consequence isn't all bad, though. If it were not for the force spreading of people across the whole earth, we wouldn't have different cultures. We wouldn't have different languages, different ethnicities. It's because God caused man to spread over the entire face of the earth that you and I go on vacations to see things, to try new foods, and to experience life through someone else's eyes. So there is blessing that comes with this consequence as well. God has always intended for mankind to spread throughout the world. He's always intended for that. And he even uses men's rebellion to accomplish that purpose. Now the fact remains, the unwillingness of these men at Babel to voluntarily obey God and spread throughout the earth while they were unified by the same language, is what allowed for continued fracture in the human race. We were already fractured. We were already broken because of sin. But this other sin, the second act of sin, allows for more fracture. More fracture because our, our inability to, um, to communicate with the same language. This, however, is not outside of God's sovereign control. It is a part of a salvation plan for his people to scatter throughout the world. It was his plan for different languages and cultures to exist. And so even though Israel is his chosen nation, there is a greater plan in play or at play. And God's particular salvation plan is seen in Genesis 12. Yes, he has a particular people that he loves. We know this, but it doesn't just stay with them. Genesis 12, uh, 12, 3 makes it very clear as God is speaking to Abram that the good that God means for this particular line of people does not stay with them exclusively. God says in Genesis 12, 3, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed through Abram's family. So this means that this is not exclusive access of blessing to Israel alone. It is going to go out. And, you know, we, we know from our standpoint in history that we're talking about Israel. Um, so that's what I mean when I say Israel. Um, it's just uh, us looking back towards this particular event. And we do see evidence of this. Right? We see evidence of this in Joseph's life. Joseph, when he got promoted to second in command in Egypt, when, when, he, when he was promoted to second in command, what did he do? What did he do? Genesis 41 and Genesis 50 tell us that he saved the world. 
He saved the whole world. He prepared food in Egypt so that the whole world could get food, so that they could survive this famine that God allows. Psalms even proves that this theology is carried forth. Psalm 2, the nations are the inheritance of the Son. Psalm 22, 25 to 31, says that all the ends of the earth will remember what God has done and all of the families of the nations will worship before you. How is that possible for the Gentiles? It's because the salvation of Yahweh is proclaimed to the world. Psalm 96, 1 to 13, who sings to the Lord? Who are the ones worshiping? What are they saying? It's the nations. The people of the nations are singing songs of worship to God. They are the ones who are proclaiming His goodness. They are the ones who are telling the world of the good tidings of His salvation from day to day. They are the ones telling of His glory. Why? Because great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. So ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved and He will judge the peoples with equity. Therefore, let the nations be glad, and let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, and all it contains, let the field exult, and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming. For He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, and the peoples in His faithfulness. This is what will come in the future. This is what will happen in the future. The nations of the earth will recognize the goodness of God and they will worship. They will worship all of the nations. And so it's not just Israel, but all of the nations are in view. Now, though the people of Israel were always supposed to be a blessing to the families of the earth, they did not always understand their mission. They didn't always see the need to care for the other nations, instead choosing to care only about themselves and often despising the other nations who were their enemies. Now, have you ever wondered why God allowed his people to become slaves in Egypt? Well, Genesis 15 tells us why, even before the people of Israel go to Egypt. God tells Abraham that in uh, verses 13 to 16 of Genesis 15, verses Uh, so Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16, that they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Though they endure this evil, God promises that He will judge the nation, He will judge Egypt, what we now know as Egypt, and as a result, He will enrich His people as well. So the abuses the people of Israel endure during this time will by no means go unpunished. He's going to judge, but he's also going to use that judgment to provide 
And also, while God's people are being enslaved, God is allowing for the Amorites, the people who live in, Can in the land of Canaan, to continue on in their sin so that they will be ripe for judgment. God allows the Amorites to continue in their sin. But this by no means that they, like the Egyptians, will get away with their misdeeds. Nobody gets away with their misdeeds. Ultimate judgment will come from God. And in this case, God will use His people to do it. And so what we see when we, when we look at the world and we wonder, why is there suffering? Why is there war? Why, why do we see uh, so many people going after each other? It's because at times God allows for wicked people to sin egregiously so that He can deal with them and also so that He can accomplish His plan for His people. In the case of the Egyptians, God provides this group of people who had nothing, these slaves who had nothing, with the riches of Egypt. In the case of the Amorites, God provides His people with the homeland that Abraham rightly purchased the title deed for when he bought Sarah's burial plot. God is working even through the injustices that occur through the world to accomplish His plan, not only for His uh, chosen people Israel, but also for all who worship Him. The other chosen people. And the earliest example of this was during the Exodus, when some people actually chose to leave Egypt with Israel because they saw the great power of God in the plagues, and they decided that they would rather worship God than stay in the land of Egypt. So what we see is that the nations will see and the nations will hear of the great power of God through the people of Israel. But it does not mean that every nation will repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. The turmoil that we see is a result of sin. The turmoil that we see, however, is not out of God's control. It's God-ordained. He allows it to happen. He allows it to happen because He's doing something. You and I can't see it often because we only see the tree amongst the forest, but God has a plan. He has a plan for all of what we see. And so we have to trust Him because He's, he's doing something. He's moving us toward an end goal. And right now, we can't see what He's doing. So we have to trust Him. We have to trust Him. Or whether it's the internal affairs of America or even just what we see on, an international, on the international scene. We have to trust that God is still doing something. It doesn't mean that we don't act, but when we act, we act in faith, knowing that whatever we might be convicted to do in response to God's word, even if it doesn't work out the way that we want it to work out, God will still use that to advance his kingdom and to advance his plan. Now we're going to take a look uh, even more so at, at more scripture and, and kind of tie in how God's salvation plan for the nations uh, helps inform us. Uh, in terms of what kind of mentality we ought to have with some of the things that we're seeing in terms of social justice. Um, 
hang tight. And if you have to, go ahead and slow down, re-listen, read the books that we're going to be referencing. Uh, but what I want to show you is that the beauty of Scripture, the complexity of Scripture, is such that when you pull, when you pull at certain texts, sometimes you get a string of other texts that, that, that uh, continue to follow. It's almost like that loose thread in uh, your favorite, in your favorite shirt or blanket. When when you pull it or when you cut it, the it, you actually end up pulling up more thread. And sometimes when we look at scripture, that's what we see. And, and the reason why I, I'm I'm sure that you are convinced that God has that God has a salvation plan for the nations. But the reason why I want to continue to look through some of these passages is to show you to show you how great this plan is. It's even greater than we can even imagine. Okay, so hang tight. Here we go. The book of Obadiah. In the book of Obadiah, God speaks to the nation of Israel during a time when the Israelite people were literally afraid to go out into the streets because the nation of Edom routinely attacked them to rob them of their food and other possessions. We see that in Obadiah 7. Now, Obadiah writes to remind Israel that God does not forget his people, nor does he forget his promises. There will be a day, verses 15 and 18 of Obadiah, a future day of the Lord, tuck this phrase away for later, in which God will judge the nations for their sin. The people of Israel will be delivered from their oppressors, and there will be peace. God doesn't call them to arms. He says, wait for the day of the Lord. And Edom in particular will be judged so that they will be no more because of their violence against their relatives. Remember, Edom is the relative of Israel, their brothers. It's Esau and Jacob. Edom is going to be judged. They're going to be no more because of their sin. And that leads us to the book of Joel. In the book of Joel, God is pronouncing judgment against Judah and its leaders for their sin against him. And that rebuke is seen in Joel 1 with the plague of locusts and with the rejection of offerings from the priests in Joel 2. Because of their sin against the Lord, Joel calls for the people to return to the Lord and repent through proclaiming a fast. God doesn't just judge the other nations for their sins, he will judge his people for their rebellion as well. This is a reminder of what we established earlier. God judges all people for sin, for the sins that they commit, for their refusal to listen to God and to obey God. God will judge all people for their sin. No one, no one is treated differently because of their upbringing. No one is treated differently because of where they were born in this world or how they were born into this world. God rightly and justly judges unrighteousness. He judges all unrighteousness, whether they're from his people or whether they're from the nations. Now, what we see at the end of Joel 2 and Joel 3 is that in the day of the Lord, right, this is what Obadiah established, in the day of the Lord, Yahweh will give His Holy Spirit to His people. He will give His Holy Spirit to His people. It means that they did not always have the Holy Spirit with them. Right? So we'll get, more, uh, we'll get to that a little bit more later. Right? So He'll give His Holy Spirit to the people, 
And then he will also judge the nations. He will judge the nations. In particular, God's going to deal with Egypt and Edom because of their violence against God's people and Judah will, and, uh, will be inhabited forever. And so the people of Israel have it in the back of their minds that after they repent of their sins, God will deliver them and restore them to the land. However, the nations, they must be judged. They must be judged. And so every, pro, every pro-Israelite, every Israelite is like, yeah, go get them, God. Go get them. Judge them for their sins. We'll repent. Judge them for their sins. And that leads us to the mentality of Jonah. That leads us to the mentality of Jonah. By the time of Jonah, the nation of Israel, they were still intact. So we have not seen the exile yet. They're still intact, but they are facing trouble from other nations, particularly Assyria. And as a result, many of the people, they had a hatred for Assyrians, Jonah included. And because, because of God's people's understanding that the other nations were going to be judged, they didn't care whether the other nations would believe in God. All they wanted was the judgment from the day of the Lord. They wanted the judgment for the day of the Lord so that they can prosper, so that they can have peace. And it's for that reason that we see Jonah's rebellion. It's for this reason that Jonah barely gets that message of salvation out. Have you ever stopped to think about Jonah's weird message to the people of Nineveh? In Jonah 3, 4, he goes around, he goes around uh, Nineveh and he says, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That is not the message that you would expect anyone to preach to another person to convince them to repent of their sins against Yahweh. That's just doomsday prophecy. It's just someone wandering through the streets saying, there's judgment coming. There's judgment coming. If we saw that happen downtown SF, we're not repenting, are we? We're thinking, man, this person, this person is either a fanatic or there's something wrong with them. But that's what Jonah was doing. He was going around Nineveh, the entire city, and he's just saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It is possible that Jonah said, said more than the text indicates. But we have to remember that the author, who is likely Jonah himself, has an intent with what he writes, what he records for his readers. He wants us to see that there was no interest in preaching a full message of repentance to God to these people. But God was faithful. And He allowed for the entire city to recognize their sin and believe in Yahweh. And is this not Jonah's problem in Jonah 4? When Jonah saw that God did not judge Nineveh, he says in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, Please, Lord, was not this what I said? While I was still in my own country. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and the one who and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me 
than life. Think of this intense prejudice and hatred that Jonah must have had towards the Assyrians. That basically he would, go, he would try to go toe-to-toe with God to delay forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin to these Gentiles because he just wanted them to die. He just wanted God's judgment against them. And yet, God is greater than Jonah's intentions. Remember Jonah's love for that plant that God caused to grow to provide him shade from those scorching east winds? Remember Jonah's anger when God sent a worm to eat that plant that he had provided? What was God's rebuke of Jonah? Jonah loved that plant, which he had no part in growing more than he loved people. God, who created all people, has compassion on these people because they are so lost in their sin that they do not know their right hand from their left. Obviously, that's a figure of speech. Obviously, there are believers out there, unbelievers out there, excuse me, who are highly intelligent, who know their left hand from their right hand. But they're so lost that basically, but what God's saying is that they're so lost that they basically cannot see this. They cannot see how lost they are. And this is his, this is his concern. This is the compassion that he has. He sees how lost they are and he wants to save them. God wants his people, Israel, to remember that though there are some people who may be enemies, they are still people out there that he has concern for. In this world, even though he does not hesitate to judge people for their sins, he will judge all people for their sins because, as we are reminded from 1 John 5, 17, all sin is unrighteousness. And the solution and cure to sin and unrighteousness before God is faith in the Lord. Faith in the Lord. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Faith in the Lord is the thing that saves. Now, we'll continue to see the reiteration of God's salvation plan. Isaiah 49, 1-13. The servant of the Lord is God's instrument, not just to save Israel. God says that it is too small of a thing for his chosen servant uh, for, for the servant of the Lord to only save Israel. Therefore, the servant will also be a light to the nations so that God's salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Note that the restoration God eventually gives to Israel will be the reason, it will be the reason for the nations to come and worship God. It's because of his salvation that the nations decide, or not, well, that the nations say that they will go to God. Okay, they will go to God because of that. Um, it says here um, in verse 11. I will make all my mountains a road and my highways will be raised up. Behold, these, that is the people, will come from afar. And lo, they will come from the north and from the west. And these from the land of Sinim. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. 
So yes, it's just for yes, it is for uh, for his people, but it's also for the sal- for those who receive his salvation to the end of the earth. Now, when we look at Isaiah fifty three, Isaiah fifty three, we all know that Isaiah fifty three speaks of Christ as the servant of the Lord, and in particular as the suffering servant. And we have to remember, we have to remember that he willingly went to the cross for us and that this oppression that he faced on our behalf was God-ordained. He endured suffering so that he could see his offspring in the future. And my point here is not to say that we should never speak up for the oppressed and just tell them, well, look to God, he'll take care of you. That's not what we say to those who are suffering. That's just cruel. That's not compassionate. But what we want to recognize here is that there's a that that God uh, there's a reminder here for us that God uses sin, uses human sin to accomplish His purposes on earth. We should long for justice. We should speak up for justice and speak out against injustice. We should stand up against evil, but we also must remember that God works through sin. So don't be surprised and don't act as if you are surprised when you do see sin in this world, because we know, we know that God works through sin so that he can bring attention to his salvation plan. He uses sin so that he can bring attention to his salvation plan. Remember 9-11? What do people say in the aftermath of 9-11? Where is God in all of this? How could God allow for this suffering? God used the tragic events of 9-11 in the mass loss of life in order to get people to stop in their routine, to stop in their comfort, and to really begin to think deeply about life. We've seen that in this pandemic, how people, because they're at home and wondering what is going on, are now more willing to see what God might be doing in this world, what God's word has to say about this world. God uses sin. So don't be surprised, brothers and sisters. Don't be surprised, but strive to use what we see as an, as an opportunity to proclaim the goodness of God and the peace that can come to those who are running towards hell. This should be the thing that concerns you the most. This should be the thing that breaks your heart the most, that there are many people who are so lost in their sin that they are all on the highway to hell. They are all running as fast as they can away from God and if it were not for the grace of God, the majority of them will face eternal punishment in hell. That should not be something that we as Christians take lightly. And we want for all people 
to understand this message. We want all people to understand this message. Isaiah 55, 1-5 says this, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. And eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commandment for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts, and let Him return to the Lord, and He will have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's so much more I can read here. But God is calling all of the nations to himself. He's going to use his people, Israel, to do that. God's word says in verse 11, of Isaiah 55 it goes forth from his mouth but it will not return to him empty with a, without accomplishing what he desires without succeeding in the matter for which he sent it God desires for all the peoples of the earth to come to him he does not care about what we care about he wants all people to come to him in worship Let's look at Isaiah 56. Okay, Isaiah 56. Verse 6. Also, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, every one who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. God is reminding His people that he will bring all people to himself. He will bring all people to himself. It doesn't matter whether they're on the edges of society. Uh, previously in Isaiah 56, uh, what, what we see is that God accepts the eunuchs. The eunuchs uh, were often not let close, uh, were not allowed close to worship, were not allowed to worship because uh, the, the image bearer that they, um, because being eunuchs, they weren't whole people. And they weren't whole people. There was a part of them that was missing. 
and because they were part of them was missing, they were not allowed before the presence of the Lord. But God says, I'm going to accept the eunuchs. I'm going to bring them in. I'm going to accept them. They're going to be identified with a name that is better than that of sons and daughters. They will not be cut off. Maybe they will not be able to have children, but they will not be cut off. They'll be able to live with me. And in a similar way, the foreigners will be allowed to join themselves to God. He will bring the foreigners to himself. He will establish his salvation for all the peoples of the nations. And he will gather us all together before himself. God cares about the nations. He cares about every ethnicity. And that's what we have to remember. That God is not about one particular people, but He is about all peoples. I know there's this trend out there right now about decolonizing your faith. That's just sloppy hermeneutics. That's sloppy Bible study. That's incorrect thinking. That Christianity is a white man's religion. It's not. It's not. We have to be careful as Christians to impose, of imposing our standards upon others. That's what we have to be careful about. But the one thing that is clear is the gospel. The one thing that is clear is the gospel and the good news that is found there. Right? I mean, if you think about it, yeah, sure, there might be some, um, there might be some Jewish people who look more Caucasian than others. But there are other Israelites, who, other people of Israel, other Jewish people who are not who do not look like other Caucasians. So, this is not a white man's religion. A lot of our materials make it seem like that, but God has an intense concern for all peoples. Okay, so this is not a Western religion. This is, this is actually rather Eastern. It's Middle Eastern. Um, God cares for all the nations. And, he, and he, he brings the salvation out to all people. Um, look at Daniel 7. Look at Daniel 7. Now, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, was ministering to the nation of Israel before exile. Daniel ministers to the people of God who are in exile. And God sovereignly has Daniel's ministry explain what he will do, what God will do in the future. So in the middle of your trial, in the middle of your suffering, God is saying, or in the middle of their trial and their suffering, God is saying to the people of Israel, this is what I am going to do. So be comforted. Be assured that I'm going to do something, that I'm going to respond to the injustices that you endure because of, well, it's not just because uh, God ordained it, but it's because Israel sinned. Right? That's why they went into exile. If Israel did everything that they were supposed to do, what we find in Deuteronomy is that they would have been blessed. Right? Deuteronomy 20, 28 pronounces blessings, but it also pronounces uh, the consequences of disobedience. Right? And, and, um, and the consequences of disobedience is exile. If they were faithful and following God, no exile. But they weren't. Therefore, exile. So Israel's not suffering for no reason. They are suffering because of their own sin. They're suffering because of their own sin.
but yet God provides them a word of comfort and assurance that he does not abandon them forever. And one of these future events is the reign of the Ancient of Days, that is God himself, and the presentation of the kingdom to the Son of Man. To the Son of Man. Does that name sound familiar? It should. Pastor Henry's going through the book of Luke right now, right? And one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself, references to himself, is the Son of Man. Now, what does the Son of Man receive from the Ancient of Days? Well, in Daniel 7, verse 13, we see that the Son of Man receives dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Why? So that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And not only this, but the kingdom of the Son of Man will be one that is an everlasting dominion. And so we know this kingdom, it goes to the Son of Man, but, but it doesn't just go to him. Skip down with me to Daniel 7 verse 27. It says, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole earth will be given to who? The people of the saints of the highest one, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. How is it possible that the kingdom is also given to the saints when it's given to the Son of Man? It's only possible if the saints are able to share in that inheritance with the Son of Man. Yes, the kingdom is the Son of Man's, but it is also something that he shares with the saints because he is one with them. He is unified with them. This idea of corporate solidarity, the one representing the many, is here. Remember, back in Adam, he represented all of mankind, and because of his sin, we all face the consequences of sin. But because of Christ, the new Adam, when we repent of our sins and believe upon him, we are one with him. And because when, when we believe in him, we are now united with him, we rightly can share in his inheritance. We can rightly share in his inheritance because we are one with him, which means that when we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to see each other as a part of Christ, not as someone who is separate from Christ or lower class in Christ or even more distinguished in Christ. We are equal in Christ. Now, let's skip forward to a more familiar passage, the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Again, our goal is to really see how God works his salvation plan through all the nations. Okay, so we looked at the Old Testament mainly because those passages tend to be a little more obscure to us, but we uh, want to look at them because they also provide the foundation for the New Testament conception of Gentile inclusion in the kingdom of God. This is not something, uh, Gentile salvation is not something that Jesus made up. It's not something that the apostles made up. It is something that God has always had in mind for the world. And in Jesus' ministry, he never forgot that God's salvation plan would go to the world. But he also never forgot the priority of Israel. And it's for that reason that in the beginning parts of Jesus' ministry, he went first to the house of Israel, but then he eventually went and expanded his ministry to the Gentiles. We see that 
uh, even in his ministry, mostly to the, to the house of Israel, when he ministers to the Syrophoenician woman, whose woman whose daughter was demon-possessed in Matthew 15, and to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. And these are not the only foreigners that Jesus ministers to, but, he ex but what we see is that Jesus expands to those outside of the house of Israel because this is a part of his salvation plan because it's a part of God's salvation plan. And so the Great Commission confirms this as Jesus tells his disciples, he commands his disciples to go forth and proclaim the good news of the gospel to all the nations. Not just to one particular people, but to all of the nations. And you'll notice that Jesus' commission to his disciples, it's not baseless. He didn't just randomly decide to send them out on a whim. It's because all authority was given to him on heaven and on earth that he says, now you go and you proclaim and you make disciples. Right? You make disciples on the basis of my authority. As the king of kings who has defeated the king of this world, the ruler of this world, Jesus does not send his disciples out on a random mission, but he sends them out as emissaries to proclaim the victory of the king. We go to the nations. We make disciples. We are making disciples in the nations in the process, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in the process, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded because he won. If it were not for his victory over sin and death at the cross, there is no proclamation of victory to the world. That's why you and I care about missions. That's why you and I ought to care about the gospel going to the least of these in this world. It's not because we want to give them a better life. It's because we want to proclaim to them that our God won. Our God won and there is hope of salvation from your sin in Him. Not necessarily that we're going to give them a better life now. That could be a small part of it. But what we want people to see is that because you're lost in your sin, you need salvation. You need salvation. And it's, it's wrong for us to even think that an appropriate strategy would be to tell people that if you believe in Jesus, he'll make your life substantially better. There is a sense in which that's true, right? Because when we're righteous and we're following after God, our life is better because we're not in our sin. But it is wrong for us to promise people that if you believe in Jesus Christ, he'll take away all of your problems. That you won't suffer anymore. That's wrong. God doesn't promise that. God doesn't promise that. He does promise, though, that He will take care of it in the end. He'll take care of it in the end, but He, will, he wants to save people from their sins first. That's His first priority. And we have to remember that, and we have to keep that as our first priority. Acts 1, Acts 1, verse 4, Jesus tells the disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Holy Spirit. Why? Why don't they just leave Jerusalem and begin to go out and proclaim the gospel? Well, it's kind of like political strategy. The king just won the capital. He secured victory with his death and resurrection. You don't give up the capital when you win. But he doesn't, he doesn't want for them to stay there. He wants for them to go out. Right? He did give them that great commission. 
but it will be later. And we see in verses 6 to 8 that they will go out, right? That they are to, um, uh, that, that they are, are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. There will be a time when God moves the church and scatters the church around the world. He will scatter the church. But at this particular time, we need to establish home base. And in Acts 2, that's where we establish home base. Pentecost. Acts 2. We know that this is the beginning of the church. And before Peter's sermon, we have this event where the violent rushing wind fills the whole house. And that language of a violent rushing wind is reminiscent of the Holy Spirit's work of breathing life into Adam. And so what we have here is an allusion to creation. It signifies the new creation that we are in Christ. And when the Holy Spirit fills all the disciples, something that you remember from Joel 2 is something that God said he would do, what happens? They begin to speak with other tongues, other languages, as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And that means that they spoke with other languages, not on their own will, but as the Holy Spirit empowered them to do. And this was this was actual language because when we look at verses 5 to 12, the people who were in Jerusalem from all over the world, uh, they were hearing the apostles speaking and they said, wow, wow, we're hearing them speak in our tongue. So we're not talking about the language of angels. We're talking about actual languages in the world. And this is also significant because why do languages exist in the first place? Genesis 11. Because the people chose not to listen to God and go throughout the world, God confused their language and spread them out. But now, now that we have a new Adam, now that Jesus Christ has come, we have a new humanity. And the speaking of tongues demonstrates that unity is happening again in Christ. And as a result, the thing which was once a sign of division becomes reversed to demonstrate the new reality that exists for mankind because of Jesus Christ. It's a reverse of Babel, a reverse of the curse of language. Well, in a sense, it's not really a curse, but, you know, it's a reverse Babel. Now, think about Acts 9. If Jerusalem is the capital of the conquering king, and if the apostles are not yet to abandon this key city in the infancy of the church, how will the gospel message go from Jerusalem to Samaria to Judea and all the ends of the earth? Some of the work was beginning with some of the apostles. We know Peter went out. But enter the apostle Paul, or the man who was once formerly called Saul. And in verse 4, as Saul is traveling to Damascus in order to persecute Christians, he is blindsided or he's, he's blinded by a great light. And a voice calls out to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Singular, right? Me. Who is Saul persecuting? He's persecuting the church. But Jesus says that Saul is persecuting him. How can that be? Remember when we what we discussed in Daniel 7? Corporate solidarity. Because we are one in Christ, any attack on the church is an attack on Christ himself. And that means, that means that 
Jew and Gentile, when they're being saved together, they have a place together in Christ. It's not as if a part of Christ's body is outside of him. We are one with him. And we see that Gentiles are included in Christ's body. Later in verse 15 of Acts 9, when Jesus tells Ananias, and this is a different one than the one who died in, in Acts 5, that he ought to minister to Saul despite the harm that he has done against the church. Why? Because Saul is a chosen instrument of his to bear his name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. The apostles can't leave the church right now. It's not time for them to be scattered. But the messenger to the Gentiles, he will go out to strategically bring the gospel to places so that it can reach the ends of the earth. God has always intended for the nations to receive salvation, and we see him working specifically through the life of Saul, who we know as Paul, as he brings the gospel to particular cities, to particular key cities, so that the gospel will go forth to the nations. And there's so much more to be said. There's so much more to be said. Uh, Acts 10, God confirms to Peter that those who were once unclean are no longer unclean, that God accepts all. And in uh, Acts 10, uh, Peter, he recognizes, he recognizes that God is not one who shows partiality. That God is not one who shows partiality. Verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. There's no partiality with God. He does not withhold salvation on the basis of one's skin color, on the basis of one's social status, or of one's gender. Salvation is available to all for who, who will worship Him and practice righteousness. It is truly for all the people. And that's backed up by the Holy Spirit, similarly to Acts 2, giving the Gentiles the gift of tongues temporarily. He's validating their salvation. And in Acts 15, you know, we look at the racial tensions between Jew and Gentile because some of these Jewish believers, they're saying, well, we're, we're glad that you repented of your sins, but you need to become Jewish in order to be actually saved. Or you need to be circumcised if you're actually going to be a part of our community. And they were going back and forth with it. They couldn't come to an agreement. And so, they, have to, they, they listen to Paul's argument. They listen to Peter uh, talk about what happened in Acts 10 and, and his confirmation, his affirmation that salvation is, is not by Gentile conversion to Judaism, but it's salvation by the grace of God. It's salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And James, the recognized head of the church, he pronounces the judgment. He refers to Peter, also known as Simon Peter, uh, to... Uh, by Simeon, the most Jewish form of his name, to demonstrate that he's not dismissing the importance of Judaism as a foundation block, but he's also telling people that the scriptures bear testimony themselves that God would save for himself those who are Gentiles. In verses 15 to 18 of Acts 15, James proves through a quotation of at least four different passages, Joel 2, Amos 9, Zechariah 8, 
in Isaiah 45 that God's end goal, His salvation plan, has always been to save for Himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this is something that we've been highlighting all throughout this episode. And as a result, the Gentile believers were to be accepted as brothers and sisters, and they should not be troubled about conversion to Judaism and observance of of the laws of Judaism. However, James does provide a few conditions in verse 20. These Gentile believers were to show consideration for their Jewish brothers by abstaining from things contaminated by idols, abstaining from fornication, which, by the way, is not just the act of sexual sin, but uh, avoiding socialization in temples, uh, which were associated with temple prostitution, um, avoiding eating foods which were strangled, and avoiding eating foods with blood in it. Basically, James is calling for Christians to accept Gentile Christians. James is calling Jewish Christians to accept Gentile Christians into the family of God as they are. But he's also reminding Gentiles, don't be a stumbling block to Jewish people. Respect their brothers and what they have been taught in the past so you don't offend them or prevent unbelieving Jews from coming to faith in Christ. Now, in Galatians we see that the aftermath of James's judgment. However, we also see a failure to, to still hold to what scriptures clearly teach because they're still struggling and, there's, and they're still trying to separate between Jew and Gentile. And Paul, as he's writing to the Galatians, says, I am amazed This is uh, verse 6 of chapter 1. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some of who are disturbing you and who who want uh, and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Be careful of a different gospel. We have to be careful of a different gospel. And, th- and this is the reason why a lot of, con- of who we would label as conservative leaders are waving the flag and saying, be careful, be careful, be careful of social justice. Because social justice has as its aim salvation from oppression, salvation from inequality. It's to rectify all these wrongs of inequality and oppression And we have to be careful of buying into that. Don't hear that and just throw out everything that we've just established in this podcast. We should stand up against injustice. We should stand up against oppression. But God also has a plan for inequality. We know this from Philippians 2. Christ was equal with God in every way, but did not see, did not find equality with God something to be grasped. So we have to be careful about what we're striving to do in the social gospel.
or, or uh, when, we're, when we're thinking about the social gospel. The gospel is about sin. Okay, the gospel is about sin. And yes, we do have to deal with our own sin against other people. We have to deal with our own sin against other people because God tells us to. We have to love one another. But we cannot confuse, we cannot confuse justice in terms of income inequality and reparations and whatnot with what the gospel is all about. The gospel is about reconciling those who were enemies of God to God himself. And in the process, we'll be one with him and we'll be reconciled to one another. But first and foremost, we proclaim a gospel that says that we need to be reconciled to God. Okay? In Galatians 3, 26 to 29, it reminds us of this. Because we are all one in Jesus Christ, because we are a part of a new humanity that is defined by Jesus Christ, Christians ought to understand people differently. Whereas other religions and society societies would have separated and prevented people of different ethnicities and social statuses um, from being included, leaving some people on the outside looking in, salvation in Jesus Christ is open to all. It's, it's open to all. And so when, when Paul writes here in 3.26 to, um, to uh, 29, um, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, into, you know, in Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. We are all in Christ. And that means that the distinctions and differences that we would, that we would be categorized by the world, they no longer exist. And... Um, and, uh, you know, this, this doesn't mean that uh, in terms of the world that there's no such thing as male and female uh, and, uh, or that gender is not a reality. It doesn't mean that, um, that different social classes uh, uh, no longer exist. Right? Differences still exist in the church, but God has a purpose for that. And we'll, again, we'll discuss that in our next episode. But what we see here is that God not only ordains our differences, but he utilizes our differences for his glory as he shows the world how the gospel, unlike other religions, is open for all who will believe and repent of their sins. You will not be prevented from coming to faith on the basis of who you are in this world. You could be the worst sinner in this world and you could still be saved. You could be rich, you could be poor. We're all one in Christ. You could be male, you could be female. We're all one in Christ. It doesn't matter. You are not excluded from salvation because of who you are. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Because salvation is open to all, regardless of the worldly categories that would divide us, the most important thing to remind us, or to, uh, that we have to remember, is that uh, our identifying marker is our collective identity in Christ. Okay, verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, 
by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man. This is where we get that language of new humanity. Thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to who? To God. Through the cross by it, having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Paul is reminding Jew and Gentile, basically Jew and all non-Jews, that in Christ, in Christ we are no longer at odds. There is no longer... Uh, there, there is no longer enmity. We've been reconciled to God through Christ and consequently to each other. But we are reconciled first to God. We have to remember that we are reconciled to God and that is what reconciles us to each other. We as a church are not supposed to strive to manufacture unity. God grants us unity. It's a unity that's found in Him. We can create other, other forms of unity, but those are not as strong as the unity that we would have in God Himself. And we have to remember that that is the unity that we ought to be striving for. And as a result, James reminds Christian assemblies that our oneness in Christ should lead us to love and respect one another despite our differences. Turn with me to James 2. Turn with me to James 2. Verses 1 to 8. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in the good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling 
the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James is reminding us in this particular context that we're not supposed to treat those, uh, those people who are entering into our churches with partiality. We're not supposed to show personal favoritism towards those who are rich. And the temptation to do that is, uh, is all over the place, right? We, we tend to want to make friends with people in high places. Everyone wants to do this because we would like some benefits. And this is human nature. But James is saying no, because we're one in Christ, those who are rich are no better than those who are poor. In fact, just as he always had, God often uses those who are the unexpected in society to show the riches of his glory. Right? Think back to what you know uh, of the Bible. And if you don't know it, it's a good opportunity for you to read it. But who does God choose? He doesn't always choose the firstborn, does he? Or between... Between... Uh, Cain and his brothers. Who's the one through whom the godly line is established? It's Seth. It's not Cain. He's older, but it's Seth. Between Jacob and Esau, who's first? It's Esau. But who got lifted up? It's Jacob. Among Jacob's sons. Yes, Judah has a special place. But through whom did God save the entire nation? And establish its power through Joseph. When God sent his son to the earth, who did God choose to save? Was it not Jesus? He was born of a virgin, whose husband was a carpenter. Remember, God uses the foolish things of this world to humble the wise and to show his plan. God has always done that. And yes, this passage primarily deals with discrimination in regards to economic status. And uh, you know that's something that's a major discussion point in our society right now as we consider whether racism is inherent in the system. But the principles that we see here can be applied when it comes to not showing partiality towards people of other ethnicities. And we want to make sure that we use the language of partiality instead of racism because we, don't, um, because we want to make sure that we're using biblical terms to describe real-world realities. And I'm not trying to minimize the impact of the definition of the word racism. Right? But even people who are using that word racism, even they're not clear in terms of when that when that word applies. It usually uh, only applies to white people, people who have status, who have power, who have the ability to oppress. But if you, but for some people, you can have racist, you, you can be justified in your racist actions if you are not an oppressor. That's not okay. That's not okay at all. It's still partiality. It's still different treatment based off of something. And so we want to use that language of partiality because that's the language that we see. We want to make sure that we use these biblical terms so that we don't sugarcoat what's going on. 
Right? Back in Acts 10, when Peter realizes that God saves Jew and Gentile alike, what did he say? That God is not one to show partiality. He doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't treat people differently because of who they are. Sure, Israel is God's chosen nation through whom he's going to bring about his salvation plan, but this is not to the exclusion of the rest of the world. Because all of mankind is made in the image of God, God desires salvation for all people. And Peter reminds us of this in 2 Peter 3, 9, when he reminds believers that, that those, uh, those who are, and these believers have been scattered because of their faith, that God is not slow about his promises. That he's demonstrating patience, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God truly does care about every single individual. He wants all to recognize their sin and to repent of their sin. And we know from 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is not forgiveness that is only offered to, Gen to Jewish people or converts to Judaism or the rich. It's offered to all who will repent and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again. Now we go forward to the end times, which is going to help us think through more of what we see. That will be a future podcast. I know this podcast is already going long. Sorry for that. Um, but this is just so important. We just can't, we, we just can't stop. We've got to keep going. Okay, Revelation. Revelation. God has never wavered from his intention to save all people. There will be people who worship God when Christ is given the kingdom, who will sing, as we see in Revelation 5, 9-10, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from, what? Every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And this is something that we see in Revelation 7 as well. There's a great multitude that no one can count. Now, sometimes when we think about the multitude who's praising God, we only think about the 144,000. There's more than the 144,000. That's just relating, uh, that's just uh, speaking to those uh, from Israel, specifically from Israel. There may be even more from Israel, but uh, some, but symbolically for, for sure of uh, what we see is at, at the very least 144 uh, in that particular time period. There's, you know, it's not like uh, only 144,000 Jew, uh, Jewish people in all of human history get saved. That, that would be incredibly sad. Um, but in this particular period, okay? Now, we... Um, Revelation 7, verse 9. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and, and where, where have they, they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, 
These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat for the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is part of that ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. We started with Abraham because we needed to see that God is faithful to his promises, that the, that the families of the earth, the nations of the earth are truly blessed through Abraham's family as everyone shares in the new reality of heaven. Everyone will share in the new reality of heaven. Now, uh, turn with me very quickly to Revelation 22, or 21. Verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. This is the New Jerusalem. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it, and its light is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kingdoms of the earth will bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Notice that the new heavens and new earth, this new city of Jerusalem. It's a physical reality that we're all going to be able to experience. And there's going to be distinctions and purposes for those distinctions. God will dwell with us, but there will also still be literal nations on the earth that will come in and out of the new Jerusalem. And so that means we're going to have things to do in heaven. We're not just going to be sitting around playing a stringed instrument that we could care less about. God has work for us to do. And we those who are no longer slaves of unrighteousness, but are now slaves to righteousness, will continue to serve our God and King, but this time in sinless perfection, just as we should have always done. Now, how does this walkthrough of the high, high points of God's salvation plan in the Scriptures connect back to these current events? It reminds us that God's salvation plan primarily moves through Israel, and from Israel it extends out to the rest of the world, so that all may hear the gospel and be saved. And as a result, even though we have, uh, have things that we need to focus on and be faithful with in our vocations, we cannot forget that God calls all of us to use our vocations, our skills, our resources, whatever God has given us to proclaim the gospel indiscriminately to those around us. Now we're bleeding into application a little bit here, um, and that was supposed to be a separate podcast, and it will be, but I, I cannot make this point enough. For those of us who are wondering, how can we tangibly do something about what we see in our world? And saying that the most important thing is not gospel proclamation, as Jesus said it was, um, when he was talking about uh, what happened with the uh, tower and, and, and uh, the tragedy that happened there in, um, in Luke 12, I believe it was. Um, uh, Oh, no, sorry, Luke 13. And, and some people saying that the most important thing is to support Black Lives Matters. Brothers and sisters, the most important thing is not, is not 
to support this movement. We care for our black brothers and sisters. We care for African Americans who are not saved and we desire earnestly for them to be saved. But we have to remember that God wants us to proclaim the gospel to them. We're not here to set up our own kingdoms, but we're here to be used by the King of Kings to set up His kingdom. That work doesn't depend on us, but God certainly does use us to accomplish His salvation plan. So Christian, consider how the Lord will use you for His glory. Don't get caught only looking at a singular tree when there is an entire forest to consider. Remember that Jesus Christ came to save us from our sins. That is the good news of the gospel. There are social causes that we should rightly support and stand up for. There are. But don't get so caught up in the mission that you forget the main objective, that we are to shine gospel light into all areas of life so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation may hear the gospel and be saved. Remember that even if even if it was possible to eliminate suffering and inequality in this world, we are only temporarily relieving people of their suffering if we do not give them the gospel. You're only temporarily relieving people of their suffering if you do not give them the gospel, even if that was possible. Right now, our country wants to try and rectify wrongs through legislation, through possible reparations, then anti-racism training. But you know as well as I do that even if these things work, even if they work, and that's hard to do because you can't, you can't change the, heart, the sinful heart of man, sin still exists. It exists in our very hearts. And the only solution to the sin that resides in our hearts is found in the gospel. The only solution to the sin that resides in our hearts is found in the gospel. Signaling your repentance of your privilege doesn't deal with your heart. You have to deal with your heart. You have to deal with what is in there. You do have to be humble. You do have to repent of your sin. Okay, you do have to do that. You do have to get rid of any partiality that exists in your heart. And that includes the people that you don't want to talk to within our very congregation or within other congregations because of who they are or what they've done to you. That includes those things. But we have to remember that first and foremost, we have to deal with the sin that resides in our hearts. Because if we don't deal with that and we try and set up uh, the kingdom of God, by doing so, you set up the kingdom without having kingdom citizens. Don't put your hope in the government because the government makes for a poor savior. You cannot put your hope in politicians. You cannot put your hope in legislation because honestly, they don't care about you. They care about power. They don't care about you. There is someone who cares about you though, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves you and he loves you so much that he willingly laid down his rights 
He died on the cross for your sins. And then God raised him up so that upon believing him and repenting of your sins, you can be saved. He cares for you. And you can't, you can't put your hope in money either because right? money doesn't solve your problems. These are all poor saviors. There's only one savior who can save. He's the one that we need to lift up. He's the one that we need to bring up. We preach him to everyone. It's important for us to respect one another. It's important for us to sympathize and to be patient, to be humble, to listen and not jump to conclusions and to not be harmful in the way that we, that, that we uh, think through these situations, whether it's wearing a mask or whether it's uh, how we are to deal with uh, discrimination on the streets. We're to listen and be respectful of all those things okay? because we recognize that each person is an image bearer and how important that is to God. But, brothers and sisters, you cannot forget the gospel. The most important thing is the gospel. It always has been. Because without the gospel, those who are lost, who do not know their left hand from their right, will continue to be lost. But we know that God's will is for all to be saved. For them to hear the gospel and to respond. And we know that he doesn't force that upon us. So you got to keep preaching that gospel to other people. So that by his grace, perhaps they might be saved. That should be the thing that drives us and motivates us in this life. If we don't care for people... If we don't want for them to receive salvation, we want too little for them. We actually hate them. Let's desire their good. Let's desire their salvation. Let's love them with all that we've got so that no matter, no matter what ethnicity they are, no matter what gender they are, no matter what economic status they belong to, that all will be saved. We'll look a little bit more at God's intended role for government and uh, even God's um, role for differences in social, social and class um, classes, uh, why that exists, and even more applications um, uh, of how Scripture affects um, our thinking about end times uh, in our next episode. I know this one's already long, uh, but... Um, we have to remember just how important it is to bring the gospel to bear on the lives of everyone, to bring the scriptures to bear on the lives of everyone. We want to love them so much that we want them to repent of their sins so that they can find true peace and true hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray. We're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for how we see consistently throughout all of scripture how much you love all people. That you're faithful to your promises. That you will not only save Israel, but you'll save the whole world. That you will bless us through your godly line. We pray, Father, that you would help us. Help us to think your thoughts. Help us to recognize that you are doing something even greater than we can see right now. Help us to truly be on the right side of history, your side. 
and to love what you love and to care about what you care about. And yes, you care about justice. And yes, you care about doing good and loving other people. But you care about, first and foremost, people's salvation. You are the one who executes justice. You are the one who executes righteousness. You will establish your kingdom. You use us as instruments. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember that you are the one who builds the kingdom through us. Help us to, to be careful of, a, of adopting that mindset that everything runs through us and depends upon us. Because we are not we are not the key cogs. We are merely tools in the hands of God. We're instruments in the Redeemer's hands. We pray that you would help us to remember that. Help us to glorify you with all we got so that we can see Christ receive glory, honor, and dominion as every tribe, tongue, and nation bows down before him and worships him. It's something that we look forward to because we love him and because we know we get to share in that inheritance as well. Thank you, Father, for your word. Glorify yourself. Help us to be even more evangelistic as a result of this. It's your sons and we pray. Amen. Have a blessed, uh, blessed day, and we'll see you on our next episode.